Okay, so uh, this is intended as part one of a four-part series. Uh, halacha user's manual, how, right? The first one is how is halacha organized? The second one is how is halacha decided? The third is by whom is halacha decided? And the fourth is how, um, in parentheses, can halacha change, right? Because we're not prejudging the question whether it can um, or not. Um, now, in order to address the question of um, can't, of uh, how is halacha organized, you should begin by asking the question, why would it matter? Right? Why does organization ever matter? Halacha, right? How do we, why, do, why do we care how it's organized? So the analogy that I want to start with is you walk into a library. And you walk into a library, you have sections labeled fiction and nonfiction. And you might think, okay, why does it matter? Well, obviously, you relate to things differently, whether they're labeled as fiction or nonfiction. Um, and it's right, you, you have different expectations of them. And one of the ways in which you can see how that, that overlaps is um, the question of Tanakh. Right? Does Tanakh go, show up in fiction or um, in fiction or nonfiction? So I think many of you know that um, Rabbi Josh Berman has um, been arguing for some years now in his, most, in his most recent book, I think, it's, I think he does it over and over again, that he says right, that Tanakh is neither fiction nor nonfiction, even the narrative sections by contemporary standards, because the categorization of fiction and nonfiction that we use in our libraries is not a classical uh, distinction. And the analogy would be, you know, what, where would you find a highly accurate historical novel, right? That breeds that round that down, or a historical recreation that, uh, right? That's how his, history was always written by having um, the characters say what they should have said to express their emotions properly, even if they didn't actually they weren't actually good orators and they said the wrong thing at the time, and that was considered to be nonfiction. That was considered to be history, and we don't consider it history anymore. So Rabbi Berman argues that Tanakh is in the wrong section. You can buy his argument or not, but it gives you an idea of how the categories, fiction and nonfiction, have um, influence on how we look at things, and therefore it matters to us um, how halacha is organized. And I want to be clear that I'm talking about how halacha is organized. I'm talking about how all of Torah is organized, and calling halacha a category is by itself a big shift. Uh, right? Those of you who have read Professor Seyman's book know that uh, halacha is a problematic term. It doesn't seem to mean the same thing as law in English. It seems to play many different roles. And, um, and the distinction in halakha and agadah that we often teach, A, we, seem, we, we assume like fiction and nonfiction, everything is one or the other. And it may be that some things are both and that there are many things that are neither. And um, yeah, right so, the, right, so even the categorization of something halakha is, is a choice. I'm going to assume that we have a category called halakha, and the issue is going to be how we um, it's going to be how we how we organize it. So I want to start with four case studies of the way in which halakha is organized as illustrations of why it is uh, what it is that we do when we organize halakha. Uh, I hope that those will, that each of those will convince you one that it matters how halakha is organized. If you want to understand halakha, right in the user's manual, I want to make it something that you understand and even that you can use. That organization matters a great deal. And secondly, to show you how, um, in many of these cases, the way in which something is organized actually affects the way we understand it. Okay, so we're going to start with uh, Mishnah and Brachot, um, which I gave you, um, which we read over here. I'm only giving it to you in English. Um, I don't think in this case the Hebrew will matter very much. So the Mishnah in, um, in Brachot says, um, from what time may we want to recite the Shema in the evening? From the hour the Kohanim entered to eat their Truma until the end of the first watch in the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer, so the sages say um, until midnight, and Rabbi Gamliel says until morning. It happens that Rabbi Gamliel's sons come from a wedding feast. They say to him, we haven't recited the Shema yet. And he says to them, if it has not yet mourned, right, if it hasn't yet become mourning, then you are obligated to recite the Shema. Okay, right, this is, right, this is the very first uh, Mishnah, which means we have a book called the Mishnah, right, we have, right, and the Mishnah, right, and this is the, the, this is the way you're introduced to the book. And it's a very odd introduction because it assumes lots and lots of knowledge. Um, so the Gemara immediately asks the question, the Bavli says, what's the context of the Mishnah's opening question from when? Right, when you say from when, that assumes you have a background. And also, why does the Mishnah start with the evening Shema instead of the morning Shema? So the Gemara gives two answers. One is that the context is, is, is the Torah saying, right, you should speak words of Torah when you lie down and when you arise, and that, that refers to Shema. And so what the Mishnah means is, 
the time of the Shema of B'Shachtacha, when is, when is that? And alternatively, the Gemara says the context is creation because scripture writes there was evening and there was morning, and we're going to interpret that for now as meaning that night came before day, even though many of you probably know uh, that evening is a gerund, and so in order for it to become evening, it has to have been light first, in order for, right? So really, uh, as Rashbam points out, there was evening and there was morning probably means that it was day bef- before there was night, but we're going to leave that for now we're going to take the meaning the Gemara assumes, which is that um, night came before day. Okay, what's the nature of this question? So the first thing that the Gemara does is it says, look, how should the Mishnah be ordered? And the simplest um, question answer to that should be, the Mishnah is Terasha Balpeh. It's right, presumably what's in it comes from Terasha Bichtav. So the Mishnah should either begin parallel to Tarash Bihtav, it should start with Tarash Bihtav, uh, right, where the Torah begins and go in order, or else the Mishnah should, go, should start where the Torah leaves off. But why does it start here? So our first answer is that it comes from a Pasuk in Kriyachma, which tells, but, right, the Pasuk in Dvarim, but the Pasuk in Dvarim is a random Pasuk from our perspective. So it's telling you that don't expect the Mishnah to in any way follow the organization of the Torah. Right? That's a big thing because that means right, all our expectations, if we come from Torah as to what the Mishnah is going to be, they're going to be completely, um, right, completely un, right, um, unfulfilled because there's no relationship between the structure of the Mishnah and the structure of Torah, and that turns out to be true. The second answer seems to think that it's, um, that it's, a, little bit, um, it's, a, little, it's a little bit more because at least it goes back to creation, so it goes back to somewhere in the beginning of Torah. But the challenge here is that if the Mishnah really begins from creation, so then you should reasonably expect the rest of Mishnah to follow the order of creation or to follow the order of, um, of the Torah in some way. And that turns out not to be true. That turns out not to be true at all. So really, a, um, a really interesting question that the Gemara doesn't ask so much here, but is implicit in it, is who says the Mishnah is in order? Maybe the Mishnah isn't organized as a book that's in order. Maybe the Mishnah is um, more like um, is more like a uh, a book that I would uh, a book I would uh, call the let's say the Kazar Encyclopedia, I think, by uh, Milan Kundera, I believe. Which um, basically the book isn't in order. You just follow. Whatever section, whatever you can read them in whatever section you want. After each section, there's a list of possible chapters you might want to go to. Maybe the mission isn't in order at all. And if the mission isn't in order, so we have to think what's its, you know, then the whole premise of the Gemara breaks down, and there's no connection whatsoever necessarily between the structure of the Mishnah and anything in Tarash Bichtav. Okay, let's go on with the Mishnah. Mishnah goes on and says, not only this, but every rather everything about which the sages say until midnight, their mitzvah is until morning. So this probably is not a statement of Rabban Gamliel. This is probably a statement of the editor of the Mishnah, which tells you something about the Mishnah as well. It's not a list of statements by, you know, it's not going to be a list of statements by Rabban Gamliel. That's not going to work. We have anonymous editors who interject. Everything in which the sages say until midnight, their mitzvah is until morning. Um, and then we have two statements, the burning of fats and organs, their mitzvah is until morning. The problem is that really is until morning and not until midnight. So it looks like this is yet another editor. Uh, interjecting. So, right, it sounds like the Mishnah is just sort of a grab bag at this point. It's just an anthology uh, of all things relevant to a subject. And then we go back probably to the first editor, but it could be Regan Leal. If so, why did the sages say until midnight? So as to distance a person from, um, from sinning. Okay, so now we know that um, the, when, that Regan Leal's claim that the sages meant, uh, really meant, uh, when Regan Leal said that you're allowed to say it until morning, He's not really contradicting the sages because the sages, while they said until midnight, they really meant, it seems, until morning. Okay, so now the Gemara wants to know, but why are the sons asking Rabbi Gamliel the question in the first place? They were assuming that the sons are very learned and they must have learned this opinion of Rabbi Gamliel before, so why are they asking him the question? So the question they must be asking him, the Gemara says, is, well, you have an opinion and the sages have an opinion, so they're the majority, and there's a rule, that majorities win. 
So therefore, really, even though we know your opinion, we should really hold like the sages, unless you're going to claim that the sages didn't really mean it when they said um, when they said until when they said until midnight. One possibility, or a second possibility is we really need to know whether the sages agree with you on a biblical level that it's until morning. Because if the sages thought it was that it actually biblically ended at midnight, then we couldn't listen to because the principle Yachid Rabim Rabim is a dominant principle on Doraisa level, and so we'd have to follow. But if they just made an additional decree, well, then we could listen to, because that rule doesn't apply as much to the Rabbanans, or it doesn't apply as much to the Rabbanans when the individual is your father. Or maybe they would agree that even though we were supposed to say before midnight, but now that it's after midnight, they wouldn't go so far as to condemn us to not say Kriyatrma. Okay, right, so now we understand how the Gemara understands this Mishnah. There's an enormous amount of information being thrown into here. You might have to know what the Oraitas are and what the Rabbanans are. Um, you have to know what the principle Yachid Rabbim Halachak Rabbim is, and you might be learning all sorts of exceptions to it. Um, and why is this the first Mishnah? Um, so my friend Jeff Spitzer had, I thought, a very, a very beautiful, a very beautiful Kiddush in which he said that this is a very odd Mishnah um, because what this Mishnah tells you is that when we say until morning, sorry, when we say until midnight, we never really mean it. That's what the Mishnah says. Whenever we say until, un, until midnight, we really mean until morning. So that's like you know, a pretty awful way to introduce people to law. We say, you know, we're going to have this law, but you know, I want you to know that we don't really mean this law. I don't really mean it. Um, that's a, right, it's, it undermines the whole nature of it. Anybody, right, anybody who, who remembers this story will end up saying, yeah, it's not such a big deal. If I, miss, if, you know, if I go to a wedding and I don't say Kriyat Shema before midnight because I can always say it, always say it until morning. Uh, so uh, Jeff argued, and I thought it's a beautiful argument, that this is the first Mishnah because it introduces you to the, it makes you part of the rabbinic class because you're people who can be trusted with knowing what the sages told the other people. Right? We're telling everybody else until midnight, but you know it's, until, you know it's, it's actually until morning. So that's a beautiful introduction. So that's a great work. Um, but the truth is it, you know, that uh, it would be nice if the Mishnah then went in order and right, you know, after this initiation, the Mishnah then taught you all sorts of principles about how to decide halakha, but it doesn't, right? It doesn't, none of these are, um, none of these are, 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 fo- are followed up in the, um, are followed up in the, uh, in the structure of the Mishnah. There are lots of other reasons we could um, say that this first mission is important. We could say that the principle Yachid Verabim is a crucial principle in halakha, as are its limits. Um, we could say that it teaches you something really vital. Rabbi Lam had this wild idea that, um, that, that the, the um, Rabbi Gamliel held that the sages had no right to an opinion here because they were making rabbinic decrees in a circumstance where they, where they weren't allowed to. And so it actually, the, uh, the first mission risks civil war because Rabbi Gamliel doesn't accept the authority of the sages. Um, those are all beautiful explanations of why this is the first Mishnah, but there's no hint whatsoever that the Mishnah is structured in that way. But what I want to get out of this extended introduction is that um, the way in which we interpret this Mishnah is affected by the, the belief that it is the first Mishnah and we're supposed to read it in order. If we, if we, if we thought that the order of the Mishnah was entirely random and there's no beginning, then none of these interpretations have any basis at all. right? So you see how just, just the notion that a text is in order, which is not in any way obvious, affects the meaning of the text. That's a, models of how organization uh, matters. Okay, I have three, uh, three other case stories, uh, case histories. One is the idea that you have to support the poor. Okay, where is that organized in the halachic uh, literature? So in the Mishnah, uh, Right, in the Mishnah it's organized in um, in Masechet Peah, um, in the agricultural agricultural taxes, and right in one of the agricultural taxes intended to support the poor. That makes sense, but in the Talmud Bavli, it's in Masechet Bavabatra, which deals with real estate. Now, why does it move from agri- from right from agricultural taxes to real estate? So the answer is that Masechet Peah is in the, the order of the Mishnah called Zra'im, called seeds, and there is no Bavli on it. The Bavli doesn't have a 
anything on the order of Mishnah called seeds except for Masechet Brachot. So you have to put it somewhere. So we put it in Masechet Bavabatra, which deals with real estate. But that creates a huge conceptual shift. Because um, really, and you can argue, if you really want that, what happened is this, there's a major societal shift that by the time you get to Masechet Bavabatra, the Jews are, in, in the Babylonian Talmud, the Jews are no longer living in agrarian society. And the primary mode of charity can't be agricultural taxes. And the whole nature is different. So the, the chapter of Babavatra, it's the first chapter of Babavatra in which the laws of charity appear in the Talmud Babli is actually about partnerships. And it's a, it's a tractate of Mishnah that conceptualizes political units up to the, at least up to the city level as being partnerships. And so now support of the poor shifts from being an agricultural phenomenon, which is you have food, you should share it, to you're a community and you have to support everybody in the community. So radical conceptual shifts can happen um, because something moves from a sefer peyat to a babatra if you think the organization is significant, but you might not. All right, the Rambam puts it back in a category called matnod anim, which is really back in seeds. Um, and then Shul the Shulchan Aruch puts it in a section called Yoridea. That's gonna, we're just going to leave your day as a black thing, box for now, because guess what? What about the laws of conversion? So the answer is the laws of conversion don't exist in the Mishnah. Why not? In the, in the Babylonian Talmud, they appear in Yivamot, which is the law dealing with leverate marriage, right, and family laws. In Maimonides, they appear as part of a much broader category called people whom it's prohibited to have sexual relations with, uh, which is an odd place to put converts who obviously become more legitimate right, as a result of conversion, but there it is. And guess what? Like the laws of taking care of the poor, that shows up in Yeridea when it comes to Shulchan Aruch. And similarly, mourning. Mourning is in Masech and Moed Katan in the Mishnah, but the Rambam puts it in his laws of judges, which is like, what's it doing there? Um, so the answer is what it's doing there probably is that it follows immediately after the laws of respecting, of honoring, of honoring parents. So the Rambam reconceptualizes um, mourning as opposed to periods of time, as opposed to holidays, right? In the in the Mishnah and the Gemara, you have holidays and you have morning time. So Merikwetan shows up there as a, an emotional state. But for the Rambam, Hilchot Avelut shows up in the category of judges as part of your relationships. It's part of family relationships. It doesn't have to do with emotions at all. And guess what? The Shulchan Aruch puts all this in Yeridea. Because Yeridea seems to be a massive grab bag, which means that um, the Shulchan Aruch doesn't necessarily have the same degree of conceptual organization that the Mishnah and the um, and the um, and the Ram, and the, and the uh, Rambam had. Okay, so those are all introductions to try and um, give you the idea that um, that the organization of halacha matters. That you can see how there isn't a single organization of um, of halacha all the way through. Rather, the the way in which halacha is organized can change over time. You can see the same. The same issue not exists, be, you know, be classified in one kind of relationship, be classified in another kind of relationship, be put into some kind of grab bag we don't understand yet, um, be radically reconceptualized between the Mishnah and the Gemara, be radically reconceptualized between the Gemara and the Ramam, if we think organization matters. Okay, so that's our, that's our basic introduction. Um, and what I want to do now is uh, introduce you to what I would call, um, there's going to be one basic thing, which is three basic kinds of organization. Those are going to use lots of complicated words, and I don't know if they're going to be perfectly coherent, but I think they're helpful. We'll try that. And then I'll try to introduce you to what I call the 13 midot of organizing halakha. 13 is a good Jewish number. Uh, right? 13 ways in which you could organize the, um, you could organize the, um, the halakha. Uh, we'll go through them first very simply, and then the, uh, the remainder of this year, we're going to try and go through them in detail with examples and show you um, right, and show you how these have been used as organizing principles, how recognizing these organizing principles might help you understand uh, what happens in halakha, what happens in halakhic discourse, the way in which um, things might be different today than in the past, um, and so forth. Okay, so here are, are actually, no, this is a good time to stop for a moment and say, if anybody has any, uh, anybody has any questions, now would, be a, uh, now would be a great time to ask them if you have any questions about the first part. Okay, I will assume that everyone's holding their questions for later. I'll also stay on at the end if anybody has questions.
Um, okay, three types of organization. Um, one is what I call the mnemonic or pragmatic. So you can organize something by saying the reason that's organized this way is because either because it's easier to remember that way or because it's easier to use that way. All right, so for example, um, the way I usually like to talk about it is I would, you know, that I think that a really great way to organize a, a conversion curriculum, well, nobody has done this, is to say that you should know that you should know about theology and you should know uh, about the, about the, um, the revelation at Sinai and you should know about the important characters in Jewish history and you should know about the nature of Torah Shadikav and Torah Shabalpeh and you should know about the, um, the regular calendar and you should know about the life cycle. And, you know, and, and the way to teach all these things is to sing Echad Mi Odea, right? One God, right? Two Luchot, that's Sinai, right? Three, three Avot, four, four mothers, right? So, the, and the only reason that, um, that Echad Mi Odea is, is set up that way is because it's easy to remember, one through eight. Okay, now that teaches you a certain amount, but then we have to use bigger and bigger mnemonics for, um, for all of Torah. And my argument is that basically one of the projects of Chazal was to turn the Torah into a, the text of Torah into a mnemonic for all of Jewish culture. And that's what a lot of the, the some midrashim are what we call productive, right? That they actually come out of the text. And some midrashim are just there so that when you read Chumash, you'll remember as much of, of Torah Shabbat as possible. So that would be a mnemonic organization would be, let's organize everything around Chumash, which is a little bit help, more helpful for memorizing than if we organize it alphabetically because there's only so many things you can remember the letter A. Now, sometimes the purpose of organization is not so you can remember it, but so that it's easier to use, right? So the dictionary, before we had electronic dictionaries, the dictionary was to organize alphabetically, not because there's anything significant about the alphabet and its relationship to the words, but because it's easier to use it that way. So I might imagine, you know, that I put together a handbook of things that you have to know, uh, in, right, in order to kosher a kitchen. Now, these things will have you know, there, there might be radically different laws involved that have no conceptual connection at all, but there's a checklist of things you go through, right? So I could organize, there could be halachic things that are organized by what you need to know on Thursdays, what you need to know on Saturdays, right? Those are helpful books, what you need to know when you're traveling on the road, what you need to know if you're a blacksmith, right? And that just tells me, right, those are just useful ways of thinking about it because that way I can find the halachot I know where I want it. That's, so those are, right, those, what I would call, those are organizations that, have no intrinsic meaning, right? They either help you remember them or they help you to find them and, right, and to make the information useful. Um, another kind of organization is sequential. Uh, so sequential can be in some ways. So for example, what I call correspondence is, well, there's an, Humash is in a particular order. So I might want to set up a halachic book so it follows the order of Humash. Okay. Uh, second is chronological. I might want to set halacha up so it follows a particular, right, or a book up so it follows a particular kind of order in time. Or causal, right, which I might say that, well, I want to follow the book so that this leads to that, leads to that, leads to that, right, or in, I might argue, you know, it's incremental, right, so I teach you this idea first, then I teach you that idea, right, so those are all ways in which the book, the book's order has, or the, the material's order has significance, um, different kinds of significance. Um, but the significance isn't about the material as a whole, it's about the order. Okay, and the last kind of called substantive, concept, substantive conceptual, and that's what I'm saying, I'm putting these things together because they belong together. And by putting these together, I'm making a claim that they all, right, that they all actually, they relate to some kind of abstraction. Right, so if I put the laws of tzedakah in the law, right, together in, in the chapter that deals with uh, corporate partnerships. So I'm telling you that tzedakah is a function of treating the poor as equal partners in the as equal partners in your society, which is very different than if I put hilchot tzedakah in, in, right, in agricultural taxes, which might be the idea. Well, you know, God gave you lots of stuff. Why should you keep right? Right? You should you should understand that it's arbitrary, and other people have as much of a right to it as you do, which is not the same thing as a partnership at all. Okay, right. So those are my three kinds of organization. Right. One mnemonic, pragmatic, where it's just a way of making the information uh, accessible or useful, but has no intrinsic meaning. Sequential, where the order has significance, but it doesn't mean that everything is related to everything else. Right? If I say that these things happened in a series over time, it doesn't mean that you know, I could be, it could be totally different things. Right? Today, I went to market. Tomorrow, right? tomorrow, I went to shul. There's nothing about market and shul 
that connects them, it just happens to be that's the order in which I did them. And then finally, right, substantive conceptual, where these things are together because they relate to something, they relate to each other in a way, um, and that way may be uh, maybe more, more or less uh, abstract, depending on how what we call brisker you get. Okay, so I'm going to stop again at this time. If anyone has a question, this would be a, uh, this would be a great time to ask it. About those, I know that's very, very abstract, so that may not generate questions immediately. Okay, so yes, it seems to me that we're saying is that Brachot, you have to start somewhere, uh -huh. so you may as well start. With, I always think that Brachot, because it's the most basic thing you do, or the thing you do most often. Okay, somebody in the background needs to mute themselves. Back Helene, you're asking the question, right? Yes. Yeah, I hope okay. So. Yeah. okay. So brachot is, you have to start somewhere. And brachot is logical because it's the thing we do the most often. Uh-huh. Here, what we're saying is that rather than just saying, well, you have to start somewhere, so I'm sticking a pin in, and that's where. Here we're saying their actual, their actual, there's an actual logic. Or there are, three, there are a few different logics that can be used. Am I right? Is that what yeah, you're trying to say? Yeah, that's my idea. There are at least three different kinds of logic that can be used, and all of them are going to be used, right? That's what I'm going to, what I'm going to try and show you in the, in the course, that, you know, that each of these kinds of logic is a way in which halakha is organized or, different, or in, uh, in different books at different times in different places, and that it's important to understand that each of these models of organization exist because they all generate certain kinds of biases. And it's always important to understand which book is organizing things in which way. Otherwise, you can't find things or understand what the sequence is. Um, and, other, and sometimes you don't understand the argument of the book unless you understand that the purpose of the book is, is its organization. Right? All it's doing is taking material everyone knew and saying, oh, look, if you organize it this way, then you understand something else. Okay? Great. Um, are there other questions? Okay, so let's go on. Let's talk about ways in which you could organize halakha. So here are already going to, all right, not coincidentally, 13 frameworks, right? So that would be, coming up with 13 would be a mnemonic organization. Um, it would be really cool if I had an acronym, but I didn't get that far. Uh, or if I could make each of them match one of your gimel midot, shatorna joshit behen, or one of your gimel midot, shalakosh baruchu. I didn't do anything that fancy either. Um, what I, you know, we'll see that I start off chronological and then I find other ways. So one possible way of organizing halakha is we'll organize around chumash. Right? We'll say that the way to think about halakha is, look, there's this set of psukim in the Torah and we're going to organize all of halakha. Everything in halakha should in some way relate back to something in chumash. And right, we might do it in order, we might not do it in order of chumash, but that's basically our idea, that we think of halakha as a commentary on chumash, or if you want, as a commentary on the legal sections of um, on the legal sections of Chumash, right? That's one that's one possibility. Okay. Um, another possibility is we could say, well, you know what? Chumash obviously wasn't the greatest way of organizing halacha because the Mishnah doesn't follow the order of Chumash, but the Mishnah set it a whole new conceptual structure, six orders, lots of different tractates. Let's organize all of halacha around the Mishnah. Okay, we could do that. We could say, no, you know what? The Mishnah in the long run, didn't, didn't become the organizing principle of halakha. We know that because, look, the Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud at least, right, um, has, right, really leaves all sorts of tractates of the Mishnah out and reorganizes it. So we're not really going to think about Masechet Peah again, right, because that seems to have been, you know, sort of be a vestigial organ as an organization principle of halakha. We're going to think about tractates in the Talmud, pages in the Talmud, right? So the way in which you think about halakha is, Everything in halacha comes from a particular sugya section, line, or in the Talmud, or reorganize the Talmud in your head. Right? We used to organize it in our heads visually by page number, but as with many things, databases have, um, have completely upended the, our internal systems of organization. So we can organize it by the Talmud. We could say, but you know what? No, the Talmud is really not organized at all. Uh, the Talmud seems to be mostly a grab bag and associative thing. You know, the Talmud, not to put too fine a point about it, the Talmud's organization appears to be almost entirely mnemonic. So if we want to organize halakha in a way that, we, that helps us understand it, 
organizing it by the Talmud is not going to help at all because the Talmud is not a substantively organized book. There is a book that is substantively organized. We call it the Rambam. Right? The Mishnah Torah is an attempt at a comprehensive, organized, conceptually organized, probably. It looks like it's conceptually organized. It invents all sorts of new categories that never existed previously. And it seems, it seems to be that's its purpose. So we can say, you know what, we're going to organize all of halakha um, like the Rambam. Now that will have certain things in it. The Rambam includes things in halakha that perhaps people didn't previously. So there'll be all sorts of, you know, of, um, of and that's part of why the Rambam includes that in his halakhic book, to make those part of halakha. So there's another way in which we could organize halakha. We could say, well, you know what, the Rambam was this massive um, work, but there are two things. One is a lot of what's in the Rambam isn't really halakha. And even if it is halakha, it's not practical halakha because the Rambam, the Rambam on purpose wrote about everything. Um, and we don't paskin like the Rambam unless we're teimanim. Right, but uh, standard Ashkenazim, um, certainly, and even Sfaradim uh, in a broad sense, don't really paskin like the Rambam. What we paskin like is a work that we call the Tur Shulchan Aruch, but this is actually a little tricky because we'll see, right, that actually there was originally a work called the Tur, and the Shulchan Aruch is a work following the, the organization of the Tur. So we can say all of Halakha should be organized around this book, um, right, the organizational principle set up by the Tur, which was then copied by the Shulchan Aruch. And that's the that's all of practical halacha can be organized by the shulchan uh, around the shulchan aruch. The problems we'll see is that the shulchan aruch is a very good way of finding things now, probably, but it's not at all clear that it's conceptually organized in the way the Ramam is. So maybe it's a good pragmatic way of organizing things, but it's not really a good substantive conceptual way of organizing. Okay, then we could say, you know what, for 21st century American Jews. All of these things are obsolete because the vast majority of American Jews, they want to know the halakha. They don't go to, um, they don't go to any of these books. What they need to know is which art scroll book is it in? So the proper way to organize all of halakha is by which art scroll book you can find this in. And that's probably a really good pragmatic way because you'll know how to look stuff up uh, easily if you can memorize where, you know, which, which art scroll book everything goes in. And on the whole, it's also a very substantive and conceptual model because on the whole, Art Scroll has books that are, you know, that are organized, um, it's, it's, it's organization like business ethics, right? There is an Art Scroll, there are Art Scroll books on business ethics. Who knew the business ethics per se was a category, right? If you look at it, right? Now we have really interesting questions, right? Should the prohibition against interest be in the book on business ethics or not? That's a really interesting substantive question. Is not taking interest a matter of business? Is not taking interest a matter of ethics? Maybe it's a wholly separate principle, right? So Art Scroll is a, is a great organizing principle for 21st century Jews. Then we could talk about smicha. Right now we're on a totally different, right? Up till here, the first six, I organized it basically chronologically. And uh, now we're gonna go to more, uh, right, more, more conceptual models. So it turns out, as we'll see, that there are multiple kinds of smicha. So you can organize halakha by what kind of smicha you need to decide it. That might tell me something. We can organize halakha by this interesting category called mitzvot, right? So many of you probably know that there is an idea. No one knows where it comes from. And the Ramban says, you know, it doesn't seem like it really should be that important, but lots of people have done it. So yeah, it must be important. The idea that there are 613 mitzvot. And we can organize all of halakha should fit into one of these 613. We can organize all of halakha chronologically, right? We'll be historians of halakha and say, okay, this is, right, this halakha comes this halakha comes into play here, it's interpreted this way here, that way here, and we can say, okay, I wanna know what the halakha, this is what Humash says, this is what the Mishnah says, this is what the Gemara says, this is what the Ramam says, this is what Shulchan Aruch says, and we could go through all of it. We could go by geography and say halakha is different in different kinds of places. We could organize it by gender, right? That's right, and say, you know what, there's also there are halakhot that apply to people of all genders, halakha that apply only to men, there are halakha that apply only to women, right? We could have, you know, there's a whole chapter about, about androgynes. We could distinguish between sex and gender and orientation, and all those things if we wanted to, and create, right, and say, you know, really the interesting principle in halakha is we're going to create, right, everyone has to know based on their sex, gender, orientation, etc. They have to know which halakha apply to them and which halakha don't, and then each of them can develop their own vision of, um, of halakha based on what applies to them and what doesn't. Um, we could do it by community identity. Right, this is within the Jewish people, right? So we could say that there's a halakha as it exists for Svardim and halakha as it exists for Ashkenazim. And then we could say, you know, what a much more um, conceptual model 
we could say, you know what? They're different kinds of law. Of which the Raisa and the Rabbanon are the easy categories, right? So here you have 13 different ways in which halakha can be organized. Um, and there, as we'll see, there are books that organize halakha in each of these ways. There are people who have biases towards organizing halakha in each of these ways. And you have to, you have to recognize these because all of these, uh, all of these um, have significance for the way in which we understand, uh, we understand halakha. So say, for example, if we organize halakha around gender, that makes a, um, that often can make a very powerful statement as opposed to people who might say, nope, you know, the standard halakha is for men. And then we have exceptions, right? And that's not a way to organize it, right? That would be, right? So say, nope, there's halakha for men, there's halakha for women, there's halakha for androgynes. That would be a very different statement about the nature of halakha and likely would lead you to different conclusions uh, about what the, about what the halakha is for everybody. Okay, so those are my basic 13 categories. And now we're going to do, and this is the, the heart of the program, is we're going to go through each of those frameworks. We're going to go through the first ones, I think, more rapidly because they deal with things you already know, and I'm just trying to get you to think about old things in new ways. And then at the end, um, perhaps we'll have um, slightly more chidushim. Okay, so let's talk about, right, is halacha organized around chumash? So in the Tanitic era, uh, probably, right? So maybe the Amoraic era, at some point, right? At some point during Chazal, there are these works called Midrashe Halacha. And Midrashe Halacha basically are efforts to derive all of Halacha from, the, from Chumash in order. Now that leaves out Brachis, right? There's no Midrash Halacha and Brachis. But for Shmos, Vayikra, Bamidbar Dvarim, they're Midrashe Halacha. And it could be, right? You know, you could say that that's the best way to understand it. The Mishnah gives you a denatured vision of halakha, and the real way to understand halakha is by reading Midrashay Halakha, and we still have those books. And they give you a very different image of halakha than the Mishnah does, and there's a whole interesting debate uh, among uh, academics as to which came first, right? Professor Olivni has a book called The Jewish Predilection for Justified Law, in which he thinks that the Mishnah is an anomaly, and, you know, and, it, and briefly, this idea of halakha divorced from Midrashay Halakha exists, but then the whole purpose of the Talmud is to renature the Mishnah and make sure that it, it still has to be tethered to, um, to Chumash. Okay. And then, you know, we pretty much abandoned that for a while, but then there's this work called the Sefer HaChinuch, uh, right among the Rishonim. Sefer HaChinuch is an attempt to, it's a mitzvah book, and the mitzvah book says, let's take all Halakha and let's fit it back into Chumash because he does the mitzvot in order of Parsha. So, right, so the Sefer HaChinuch is another book that does it, and then it basically, the Sefer HaChinuch does that, and it doesn't really have so much influence. But then in the 20th century, it shows up again, because we have this work called the Torah Tmimah. And the Torah Tmimah is an attempt to reorganize all of Halakha and some of Haggadah, and fit it back into the order of Kumash. And you'll say, okay, but those are you know, all academics, but we have you know, very popular Halachic Parshat Shavuah Shurim that do the same thing. So Rabbi Sacher, a friend in Baltimore, and Herschel Shachter in YU, uh, each give what, you know, a, a, allegedly is a parsha of Shavuah shir, but it's really not about Chumash at all. What it is is a shir that uh, gives you a certain amount of halachic material and connects it to the parsha. And my friends who are in our Shefter shir tell me that if you basically listen to three to five years of his parsha shirim, then you get a whole survey of his halachic positions on almost everything. So it's another way of organizing all of, uh, all of halacha by Chumash that still exists. Okay. So I gave you, uh, the Mishnah, you know, gives you its own structures, but there's very, there have been very little attempts since the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a particular structure, and it, and it, it gives you, um, you know, it, it gives you very clear categories, right? You know, that there's tarot and there's kachim, right? You know, that uh, right, purity, impurity, sacrifices, um, family law, civil law, right? You can see how it's organized. The Mishnah is a very reasonable uh, conceptual structure. But interestingly enough, the Mishnah has minimal subsequent influence. Uh, just about nobody tries to write, uh, to reorganize halakha around the Mishnah. Well, that's a really interesting question historically, why that's so. Uh, right, the Bavli, as we said, you know, basically eliminates Zerayim. Um, and it does most of Moed, Nazikin, and Nashim. Then it eliminates, it eliminates most of Taharos, but keeps Kudshim, which is a really, really weird thing trying to figure out, even though even though, in addition, in addition to having a separate section of Kachim, it includes the Kachim aspects of Pesach and Yom Kippur um, in, um, in the books on Pesach and Yom Kippur, and not, it doesn't have separate uh, halachas for Hilchas Korban Pesach, the way the Ramam does, for example. 
right? The Yerushalmi has uh, has different different gaps. It doesn't right. The Yerushalmi doesn't have uh, Kachim at all. Although every once in a while people claim to have discovered it, because uh, always a mystery. Maybe there was a Yerushalmi and Kachim, but there isn't now. Fine. Okay. Right. So those are two organizational structures. Uh, there again, um, it's really been right. It's really been a, um, people d- for a really long time didn't try to organize halacha around the Gemara. Gemara was a book you learned, and halacha was written in a. Uh, I mean, so the riff, the riff, and the rush tried to just write synopses of Gemara, um, and produce halacha that way. But once the Shulchan Aruch came along, that approach um, really failed to uh, failed failed to catch on. So it's been a long time. Now there is a work called Chashuke Chemed. Um, which is an effort to organize massive amounts of responsive literature by the page of the Talmud, uh, or Daf al Daf, right? Which is a huge, a huge help for Daf Yomi Shurim, which organizes lots of contemporary Shuvot. So now, uh, really, because of Barilan, I think, because it's electronic da- databases make it easier. So there are new efforts to try and um, redo Halacha in the order of the Talmud. There was a project before them by Rav Cook also uh, called. Um, Halacha Brura, I think, something like that, that tried to do that as well, which I think that that effort is being made, is also being continued. Okay, the Ramah, as you can see, completely reorganizes everything, right? He puts in, he puts in this work called Sefer Mada, which includes um, maybe Mishnah Avot, which was, used to be in the Zikin, which is sort of thrown in there, right? Some, some things correspond, um, something cor- correspond really well to categories in, in the Mishnah, but then he creates this new book called Kedusha, which includes um, prohibitions against food and prohibitions against uh, right against sex, which in the Mishnah and the Talmud are completely separate. Uh, we already talked about how Shoftim, right? He has Sanhedrin, but he also has Avil. And then I just point out a way, like so, the Rama has this very neat organizational system in which he has these fourteen books. That's why it's the Yada Chazaka, and each of them has subbooks. Uh, but Barilan messes all that up because Barilan just puts all the subbooks in alphabetical order. So all the all the beauty of the Rambam structure is lost. If you do it on Barilan, HebrewBooks.org does not do it that way. Okay, right. Then we get to the Shulchan Aruch, which is a wholly different organizational structure. As we said, Shulchan Aruch has four sections: Orechaim, Yerodea, Evan Ezra, and Choshen Mishpat. So Choshen Mishpat roughly, uh, roughly um, equals the Zikin. Evan Ezra roughly equals Nashim. Orechaim roughly equals Brachot and Moed together, and Yerodea is just sort of everything else. Um, but what, what you can see is that different people, right, that his organizational structure affected what people learned and what people wrote about. So if you ask for who are the standard achronim on Orachayim, so you'll get it's the Magan Avraham, the Taz, and then the Mishnah Bura and the Erechosh, um, well, the Erechosh more broadly than that. Mishnah Bura certainly um, is limited to Orachayim. In Yeridea, instead of the Magan Avraham, you get the Shach. When it comes to Evan Ezer, you get two completely new people, the Beit Shmuel and the Chalkat and the Chukik. Right, you don't you don't uh, right the the other figures the Magnavram, the Shach and the Taz don't have great significance there. And when you get to the Choshen Mishpat, so the Shach comes back, but the Sefer Mirati Nayim, the Sma, comes on instead. So you can see how these organizational structures. Once you have this organizational structure, then other people write books based on your organizational structure. So they have, right, so they, these become specialties, and right, and so the whole nature of halacha is altered by it. We talked about how Art Scroll uh, right is radically. Um, Radically reshifting, and among the things that Art Scroll is doing, is it creates the subspecialty rabbi, right? The rabbi who knows, uh, right? Who knows, right? You know, a narrow thing well enough to write a small book about that and have that become the dominant um, halacha. That's part of a general phenomenon of the ex kihil chata, right? That one of the books you write nowadays is you take some area in halacha that previously people, you know, might have said, oh, well, look at that has eight lines in Shulchan Aruch, and you write a 300-page book about it. All right, one of my favorites is Erev Tavshil and Kihil Chata. Erev right, which is the thing that you, uh, right, that you that you that you cook in advance in order to let yourself uh, cook on Yantif for um, for Shabbos. Um, so there's, I think a, I think it's a two volume work. It just goes, it's just a list of foods and a statement of whether that food counts as a tavshil for Erev Tavshilin or not. So I'm sure it's a very accurate, very worthwhile book. But you know, we 200 pages. You know, what is a pragmatic guy? What a pragmatic guy says is. Right, you sh- right, you should probably take these two ba- rough foods, you know, it's not, you know, basic categories, and you should say this. But if you didn't, the Rebbitzin of your community did anyway, so you can cook anyway, right? That's the most, that's the practical way 
Aristotle Shulin takes, you know, takes a line otherwise. Okay, so now we get to things that you might not be as uh, familiar with. So what about smicha? So the um, Gemara says there are three kinds of smicha. There's yora yora, yadin yadin, and yatir yatir. So the thing that people usually haven't heard is yatir yatir. Uh, yatir yatir is is a special is a specialization that deals only with the question of whether a blemish on a firstborn animal, which would otherwise have to be a korban, is a permanent blemish such that it can no longer be brought as a korban, and therefore can be used by a kohen. This is the subject of a very amusing um, story in the Gemara. The Gemara says that Rav, you could only get you could only get smicha classically in Israel. So Rav, before he went down to Babylonia, wanted to get smicha, and so he studied everything, and then he wanted to make sure he knew he he knew the um, Yatir Yatir material really well. So he went to study with shepherds for six months. When he came back, he was told he couldn't get smicha for this anymore because he was too good, and nobody would understand how to use his rulings as precedent. Um, so narrow expertise turned out to be a uh, turned out to be a negative for him. Uh, but these are really interesting notions. Like, what do you need yora yora for? What do you need yadin yadin for? That's that can be a whole. Right? So, for example, generally nowadays, right, although we don't make these rules absolutely, we say that yadin yadin is necessary for divorce and civil law. So that puts those two categories together in a way that they have never previously been put together halachically. Right, right, we saw that you know that Nashim and Nazikin are separate categories. Yet here, when it comes to authority, um, right, they're um, they're very different. If you uh, right, I wrote an essay for the Lech Expedition where he distinguished between the kind of smicha that you need to participate in abstract discussions of what the law should be, and the kind of smicha you need to be able to have authority to impose the law on other people. So that's also a, a you know a wholly different conceptual categorization that comes from that. Okay. Then we have perhaps one of the most interesting things, which is mitzvot, right? Dividing into traditionally 613 mitzvot. I'm not aware of any list of mitzvot that doesn't end up adding up to 613. Uh, although you could conceivably you know, try to just write a book which said, I'm gonna try and reduce the, the, you know, all of halakha to basic um, categories. And the basic categories might end up being 20 or they might end up being 3,000, but we say 613. In order to do that, we all have all sorts of other categorizations. So the smog, for example, distinguishes between mitzvot aseh and mitzvot lotaseh, right? That's a, um, right? That's a, uh, you know, that's a whole distinction. Who says that there's everything aseh and lotaseh? The Gemara talks about it, but is that a fundamental way of thinking about it? They're all the, the things that cross the lines. Aseh is lotaseh, uh, right? Things like things like that, right? Those are, um, those are, those are challenging. What the Raman's organizational structure is is really puzzling. The Sefer Achinuch we already said, uh, bases it on Chumash. The Sefer Yireim, Rabbi Yezer Mimitz, comes up with a wholly different conceptual categorization that is unprecedented and probably unfollowed. Like, you know, it just sort of was, it distinguishes between things related to sexuality and things related to food, thereby breaking apart the Ramam's categorization, things that you're not allowed to derive benefit from, and things that you're just not allowed to, um, to things that, ways in which you're not allowed to get money from, things that make you uh, that make God that that are uh, offenses against both God and people, but aren't considered violations of money. Things that are said by speech, right? Whole new conceptualization the the Aram thinks, which he obviously thinks matters, um, but which yeah, has very little subsequent influence. But he thinks these are the fundamental categories of halacha. Uh, then we have philosophic categories, sichlio mitzvot that um, make sense to a rational person, uh, or that are intrinsic. Sorry, they're Mitzvot that are in, that are based on some kind of intrinsic reason versus before samot reasons that are just the uh, mitzvot that um, are just based on convention. Chukim uh, versus mishpatim, right? That's more like mitzvot that, at least in Rashi's understanding, mitzvot that have a rationally intelligible purpose versus mitzvot that don't have a rationally intelligent purpose. And there's a whole debate: is there really such a thing as a chok? Right? Rashi says there's such a thing as a chok, but there are mitzvot that we relate to as you know without having any conception of their purpose. But most of the of the rest of the tradition thought that that was a terrible thing to say. Every mitzvah must have a purpose. And I, I've talked about chokification maybe in different eras, mitzvot can be classified as either chukim or mishpatim. Then we have mitzvot the universal, right? That apply to all of humanity, in, right? Versus mitzvot that only applies to Jews. Right? That can be a very big um, category. And then the problem with all these mitzvot categories is that we have rabbinic mitzvot that, um, 
when the Bahag put together the first list of mitzvot, so he included rabbinic mitzvot in the 613. But the Ramam said that that, um, that that makes no sense at all. And so now all these categorizations of halacha basically leave mitzvot rabbanan out. And it turns out that our experience is largely shaped by mitzvot rabbanan. So that's a real flaw in all mitzvah organizations. Okay, chronology. Right? So we can just do halacha, as we said, you know, all these ways. Um, but and then you know ongoing debate now uh, are we still in the achronic period are we in the achronic period are we in some period that is even beyond that and that and since there is an understanding of halakha which is based where authority is based on what period you belong to so it makes it you know it makes a big difference who you classify as an achron what all right how you classify us related to the achronim right for example you know it's Though we conventionally say that Achronim can't argue with Rishonim, but um, the Vilna is an exception, right? But really, that's that's really I think a misnomer because the Vilna being an exception really comes from the Briskers, and the Briskers think there were lots of exceptions. Uh, they just don't like periodization in general. And we can say, right? For example, the way to end the period of Tanim end with the period of the Mishnah, the Amoraim end with the with the canonization of the Gemara in some way, the Rishonim end with the Shulchan Aruch, and then the question is, well, you know, how would the Achronim end? There hasn't been any book that really um, captures the age. So the only way we can say the era of the Achronim ends is if we count art scroll as the, end, as, the, as the break of the Achronic period, which I think would be uh, unfortunate. Okay, geography, right? So we can talk about mitzvot that apply in Israel versus mitzvot that apply in the diaspora. Uh, we can do other ways of doing it. Um, gender, right? So we have right, a Mishnah in, um, in Kedushin that, you know, that just lists, right? The whole Mishnah that just lists which mitzvot women are... Um, men and women are chayavodin, which mitzvot men and women, only men are chayavodin, right? That's an organizational structure. The Sefer Achinuch actually, right, is a really reliable source that way. Is pretty much the Sefer Achinuch is the only really reliable source who tells you for every mitzvah whether it applies to men and women, only men, only women. Um, so that organizational structure didn't last for a very long time, but now it is again, right? Because now we have many more halachic books that are aimed specifically um, at uh, at least specifically at women. Okay, community identity, right? Halakha can be different for Sephardim versus Ashkenazim. Uh, lots of you will know that um, Sephardi, Ashkenazi also, right? Ashkenazi, I, I lived in Washington Heights. So uh, certainly the uh, the Breuer's community believed it was you know, separate from other kinds of Ashkenazim, but you know, that it doesn't have the same halakha as Poles, right? They were Germans and they were Germans from a very particular tradition. Uh, Svardim, um, some of you may know, right, Ravad Yosef created what he called Svardik Halakha, but many, many people were, you know, what he did is often, you know, he created Svardi Halakha, and that made, that gave Svardi cultural, Svardi culture a huge boost, but in order to do that, he had to amalgamate lots and lots of different traditions, and really there are subcategories, Iranian and, and Iraqi and Moroccan and Lebanese um, and Syrian, right, and, and Taimani and all those, right, so the notion that there's a single Svardik Halakha is uh, right is really problematic. So we can organize halacha very differently, and that you know is really this great success of the Shulchan Aruch is that it was divided into the Rav Yosef Kara called Svardik Halacha and the Ramla being Ashkenazi Halacha. But we could also talk about the difference between Hasidic and Misnagdic Halacha because they're all real differences that have you know to some extent been homogenized now. We could right for ourselves we could talk about the difference between Haredi and modern Orthodox Halacha. And a lot of it, right? And a lot of issues that makes a difference, and maybe in a lot more, it should make a difference. It obviously makes a difference in uh, gender issues. It makes a difference in universalism versus particularism. Uh, it makes a difference in the next distinction between, you know, Zionist halacha and non-Zionist halacha, which has enormous ramifications um, in terms of how you relate, how you how you function in the state of Israel, right? Whether you see army as a primary duty or something most much to be avoided. So, those are also ways in which we could conceptualize halakha and halakhic positions. And then finally, um, but the types of law, right? So types of law are different than sources of law. Um, so I'm going to start off with the distinction between Doraita and Durabanan, uh, because too often we say Doraita is biblical law and Durabanan is rabbinic law, um, but that's not really true because Doraita are laws that the rabbis choose to give biblical authority and Rabbanon are laws that the rabbis choose not to give rabbinic author- biblical authority. That's really a better description. Very little of the right halacha could be derived just by reading the text of, uh, of, um, of Chumash. 
And very often, there are Drabanans that could easily be viewed as interpretations of the text, and it's just a rabbinic decision, okay, up till here we call this biblical law, and that has certain formal roles, and up to here we have, we call it rabbinic law, which has, um, which has different sorts of formal rules about it. Uh, we have intermediate categories called, called halachala Moshe Messinai, um, right, which is laws, uh, let's say for now, right, laws that are whispered to Moshe on Har Sinai, but didn't make it into the Torah. Those are very odd things. Um, we don't know what their status is. We have um, halachot that are created by, your, by uh, taking them yourself, by taking a nether, taking an oath. We have laws that are created by practice in some way, communal practice, personal practice, right? We call minhag. So those are, right, so trying to, clar- to clarify which each of these is, is a challenge. So I want to finish with two things. Uh, one is a teen directed Rabbanan. So the classic distinction between Doraita and Rabbanan is that, um, in the formal sense, is that halachot Doraita, if you have a doubt, you go, you, you take the strict position. Whereas halachot Rabbanan, if you have a doubt, you take the, you take the lenient position. Uh, and I always thought, right, you know, and my education in YU, that was a critical thing. You had to know for every halacha that was the key organizational principle: is this Doraita or is this Rabbanan? And my grandfather, Lev my mother's father. Uh, used to be very, very upset at me and my YU friends when we come down to his shul and we give a shear and the result of the shear would be to prove that a certain prohibition was Drabanan and not Dioraita. And my grandfather would look at me and say, why does it matter whether it's Dioraita or Drabanan? It's just usser. And I would look at him and say, but Zedi, right? you know, it makes all the difference in the world. And I couldn't understand his position. And then um, some years ago on Pesach, I set out you know, sort of one of the, my redemptive projects. When I was in elementary school, I was forced to read the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, and I hated it. Um, but it's one of the things I always felt guilty about. It bored me to distraction. So for, for Pesach, I decided my project is going to be to read the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch. And um, I read through a significant portion of it, and it turns out it's beautiful. But one of the things that astounded me was that he never mentions the categories that write in Durabanan. I think if I remember correctly, but these numbers are off. He mentions the, the, the terms the Raisa and the Rabbanan, I think, nine times in the whole book. And seven of them is to say there's no difference between the, it doesn't make a difference whether it's the Raisa or the Rabbanan. So all of a sudden I discovered, oh, so my grandfather was a Kitzar Shulchan Arachid. Right? He was raised, his halacha was the Kitzar Shulchan Aruch, not the Mishnah Brura. And the Kitzar Shulchan Aruch doesn't care about these categories. Why? So I think it's because there are some people who doubt it's sort of a state of life halachically. It was, you, know, you always see multiple sides. And so there's always a doubt. And so you're constantly making decisions on the basis of this mechanical rule, right? This is a lead-in to tomorrow. How is halakha decided, uh, right? So, so there are people like that. And other people like my grandfather who was perfectly capable of making up his mind if there was a 50.1% possibility that way and a 49.9% possibility that way. That wasn't a doubt. That was a vote. That was a majority. And if you, always, and if you were a decisive person, then it really, not, really doesn't, the categories are right there, but I'm never going to matter to you because you're never going to be in that kind of doubt. So there's a... You know, one way of thinking about the importance or lack thereof of the categories to Rabbanan. Last thing I want to say is that um, all these, cate- right, these categories people assume are comprehensive, but actually it's possible that there is a wholly different category, which is not on my list, which I'm going to uh, put in now, which is called natural law. Maybe there are things that are, um, there are things that are binding not because they're in the Torah, but just because you have to do them. You always have to do them, um, right? So is there space for such a cat- for sp- such a category? So my teacher, Rabbi J. David Bleich, uh, argues, and I um, don't know whether I got the argument from him or it was always obvious to me, um, natural law, uh, that the that there's a Gemara which makes it clear there is such a thing. Where the Gemara says, how do you know that you um, how, how do you know the three things you have to give up your life rather than do? What are those three things? Idolatry. Uh, right, uh, sexual immorality and bloodshedding. Idolatry, we have a verse for. Sexual immorality, Arayot, the Gemara says, well, that's compared to bloodshedding in the Torah. So since the Torah says you can't bloodshed to save your life, therefore you can't commit Arayot. The Gemara says, yeah, but how do I know that you can't shed blood to save your life? You can't kill somebody else to save your life. And the Gemara says, that's just Svara. That's just a rational principle. Who says your blood is greater than his? So the point of that is, it's not, that's not, that when it comes down to the core question, can you kill someone else to save your life? The Gemara doesn't produce a pasuk. It says you have to know that before you come to the pasukim. So much so, the Gemara says there's a, there's a pasuk in the Torah 
which is the comparison between Arayot and Shrichut Damim, which you can only understand if you came to the Torah with this idea, who says your blood is greater than his. So that seems to suggest that there are ideas, um, there are moral ideas that precede the Torah. Uh, so on in the, uh, I think the third, uh, the Wednesday night year, when we talk about CRISPR, um, so we'll talk about, or uh, perhaps, Ray Blythe tried to produce another concept of um, natural law there as a basis for halakha, and um, Rabbi Mordechai Feinstein, or Moshe Feinstein's um, uh, older brother, also has a um, also has an essay um, in which he suggests that there's an, another fundamental fundamental natural law principle, which is more different in a way. It doesn't have specific content. It's the idea that God has the that one has the obligation to fulfill God's will. Okay. That's the end of my presentation. Are there, uh, and we're just about exactly on time. Uh, does anyone have any questions before we finish? Where would you put Chorev um, on this? Rav Hirsch's Chorev? Yeah. So just like another Mishnah Torah kind of organization, maybe? or? So that's a really good question. You know, the truth is, I don't know Chorev well enough. Uh, I think Rav Hirsch in general has a, uh, right, has a, has a huge, has a huge project in two ways, right? One is he has a project to connect all of halakha to Chumash again. And secondly, he has a project to fit all of halakha into his own moral and symbolic system. Right? So those are both two great projects. I don't know, Chorev, that, that would be my, my offhand thing, is that, you know, that Chorev is part of these two things, A, to connect everything to Torah, and B, to organize Torah into a fairly limited set of moral and um, symbolic categories. Uh, more than that, um, I can't say it's been many years, and I'm not even sure. I always loved the introduction to Chorev, but I'm not sure that I ever ever made it all the way through with, with seriousness. So I don't have a great answer. Um, do you have do you have something specific to contribute about that, Yale? No, I don't know well enough either. Okay, good. That's fine. Good question. Uh, good point. Uh, that's another good example. Okay, are there other questions? Um, I would also ask, does all this show that you, people have like freedom to reorganize things as they, as makes sense to them, or does it have to be some sort of license? So what I would say is, um, Rav Schechter likes quoting what he, what he frequently says is the one thing that he learned in, in, uh, in English classes in YU, which is this quote from the philosopher Blaise Pascal, that there are no longer any, there's no longer any creativity and substance. All you can do is reorganize things. Uh, so as far as I know, nobody has ever said you're not allowed to reorganize halakha that way. So I think there's license. But part of the point, you know, Pascal's point is that when you reorganize things, you invariably you know, end up being creative. So it's a really fun way of being creative um, is to just think of a new way of organizing the material. And as soon as you think of, and if you can think of a new way to organize the material and it convinces people, then that by itself, you know, that's, that's an outlet for creativity. Um, Dr. Chaim Soloveitchik uh, liked to say there are people who create sugyot. By creating a sugya means that you think of topics, you organize the material in such a way that this is a topic in a way that it wasn't a topic. And I don't think it requires authority to do that. I think that's just an idea. So that's a great outlet for creativity. If you, um, right, if you just come up with a new category to fit halakha into and you convince other people, I don't think there are any constraints and it turns out you have a lot of influence that way. Thank you. That is, that's a great question. Um, okay, other questions? Okay, um, okay. so I see there's... Um, okay, so if there's a... Um, so if there aren't any, any current questions now, first of all, you're all welcome to email me at uh, moderntorahleadership at gmail if you have questions. Uh, always happy to answer with great tips for the people who are paying attention. It's moderntorahleadership at gmail. Uh, if you are not uh, already signed up for the weekly Dvar Torah, uh, you can either do that on the website um, or uh, I believe on the Facebook page of the Center of Modern Torah Leadership, or you can email me and I'll put you on. Uh, you should be aware that we just started a podcast and uh, are adding to the YouTube channel, so you can hear this again. Um, you can watch it on the YouTube channel, and um, and any help you can have in spreading the ideas and the Torah to other people would be great. Thank you very much, and I will look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow at, uh, I think, 10.30 a.m. is um, this year on how drastic halacha can change in Shasat Chak. And tomorrow at 9 p.m. is how is halacha decided.
All right, thank Just you. Thank you. Look forward Thanks, to seeing you. Thank you. Thanks. Good night. Good night. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, okay. I, I owe an answer to one person, so I will. I will write that answer. Thank you. Yeah. Uh -huh.